Uh, Let's open our Bibles now to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. And why don't we stand together and let's read through verses 11 through 21. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. It says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all of the birds were filled with their flesh. Father, we thank you for this passage, Lord, perhaps the most significant portion of scripture in the entire Bible. And Lord, we are aware of the gravity of this passage. Lord, it's what we, the whole earth is waiting for. Lord, the the final summation of the battle of good and evil. And Lord, you will always prevail because you are God Almighty. And Lord, help us to understand these things. And Lord, may it spur within us, Lord, a great desire Lord, to minister to those around us, Lord, that they would never have to go through the trials and the the great tribulation that is going to come on the earth. Your word has spoken of this. And so, Father, help us to be your ambassadors, your loving ambassadors, sharing the truth and love to those around us, Lord. And so we pray for your blessing and that you'd open it to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Before we get into this passage, I just quickly want to go through the difference between the rapture and the second coming. There there is confusion uh, within the church, and maybe you're not confused, but some are. But there is a difference between the rapture and the second coming. The rapture of the church is something that could happen at any moment. It speaks of imminency. The Bible says that the church will be removed, that the dead in Christ, we read of this in 1 Thessalonians 4 many days ago, that the dead in Christ will rise and they will receive a new body. Those who have already died, even perished, 
even are in dust in the graves, their bodies will be renewed and remade and they will be caught up together. And then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with the Lord and we will be with him for seven years while God pours out his wrath on an unbelieving, God-rejecting world. That is the rapture of the church. Let's not confuse that with what we're looking at this morning because the second coming or the, this, uh, this passage we're looking at this morning is a separate incident. The rapture is at the beginning, the church is removed, and then all those chapters that we've been reading, chapters 6 through 19, or 6 through 18 especially, all those are happening while the church is in glory in heaven with Jesus. The beam of seat judgment takes place, the marriage of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then finally on our honeymoon we come back and we go for a trip. And we're coming back with the Lord Jesus Christ, him on a white horse, and we are going to follow him on white horses. And then when he comes back physically to the earth, physically to the earth, he will set foot on the earth. That is what we're looking at this morning. That is what is called the second coming of Christ. And so when we look at the rapture, that could happen at any any moment. There's very stark differences between the rapture and the second coming. It could happen at any time. It could happen in the twinkling of an eye. The world's not going to see it. It's going to happen that quick, and we are going to be translated. The dead in Christ are going to rise. We looked at that, and we who are alive and remain will be translated. And where are we meeting the Lord? We're going to meet him in the clouds, in the air. It's not going to be something that he's going to come down yet. He's going to meet us there. We are going to rise to him. Follow me? But Jesus does not set foot on the earth at that time because we're with him. And it is called the blessed hope. And we compare that or contrast that with the second coming. And there are many things that need to happen before the second coming. We've been looking at them. We've been looking at the the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments, all of these wraths of God upon the earth while we are with him. And there are many things that have to happen before he comes. The lawless one has to be revealed. He hasn't been revealed. And he won't be revealed until you and I are taken up to glory. And the whole world will see when Jesus comes back. We'll see scriptures today that will talk about that. Everyone will see it. And Jesus and the armies of heaven, the church, physically, we come back to the earth. We set foot on terra firma once again after being with our Savior for seven years in glory. And this this, uh, second coming is called, among many things, there are many names for it, it's the great day of the wrath of God Almighty. The day of the Lord. It's the beginning of the day of the Lord. So this morning's passage is about the second coming. And no longer are the judgments being issued from heaven in the form of those judgments that we've been looking at. Now Jesus himself is going to come to the earth. And he is going to put an end to this period that we've been talking about for so long. And after this this judgment of Christ coming to the earth, it's going to get so much better for us. But there are many over the years and over the century, really over the last few millennia, who have scoffed at this idea of the return of Christ. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter says, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. Have you met any? Perhaps for some in your family? Those who have said, "Where you know, people have been talking about this forever. When is he coming? I don't see it. It's not going to happen. Of course, the rapture will precede that. 
but they don't believe either one of those. They, they, they might even assume that they're both the same thing. But notice that they will walk according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning. Nothing has changed. It's not going to change. It's always going to be the way it was. That's kind of the attitude. But that's not the way it's going to be. And it's okay. I mean, it's actually not okay. But they have the right, if they choose to, because they're a free person, they can think what they want. But the Bible tells us something different. And how important, then, is it for us to share that truth with them? To share the word of God with people. Because see, you and I hold this treasure in our hands, this truth of the word of God. There's nothing greater. There's no other book in the universe that's true. There's no other, there's no media, there's, no, there's, no, there's nothing. This is it, folks. This is the truth. Jesus is the truth. And the only other physical thing on this earth that manifests truth is this. This book and the spirit of God in you. But this is it. So it behooves me then, if that is the truth, that I had to dig into it. I had to love it and really search it out and seek it out and and ask God to give me understanding. Amen? And I pray that that's what you do. Because that's what we're called to do. That's why we gather today like this, to be built up so that we can go out into the real mission field and minister to family, friends, coworkers, all those people out there. We need to be ready. Be ready, church. That's why we go through this line upon line, book by book, chapter by chapter. And notice that even as Jesus returned, when he returns to the earth in judgment, he also does it in mercy. And you may be thinking, what are you talking about? What did Jesus say in Matthew 24? He says, for then there will be a great tribulation, which we've been looking at, haven't we? Such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. This is it. This will be the final thing. And notice what he says. Unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Jesus himself, as we're going to read this morning, is going to interrupt that process in mercy. Do you understand that? In mercy, even in judgment, there is mercy. Isn't that a wonderful God that we serve? I mean, think of that. Think of all the lives that are going to be spared and have an opportunity to know him as a result of him coming back. He's not just this wrathful God who just can't wait to smash you with a hammer. See, there's many people who have that understanding of a God, and it's so wrong. God is the most gracious and merciful and loving being that ever has existed. And people always filter things. They look through the Bible with their own lens instead of looking through the lens of the Bible. You know you have that ability, don't you? You can look at a truth, and you can put on your own glasses that have some kind of swirly effect on it, right? And you can uh, interpret the Bible whatever way you want. There's an old phrase that says, if you torture the data long enough, it'll confess to anything. But you look at the Bible straightforward and you read it verbatim. And you trust what it says. It means what it says and says what it means. Jesus says what he means and he means what he says. We don't need, and honestly, a child can understand. They may not get the, the, the mysteries and stuff, but you know what? There's, there's enough mystery in there to keep us going, but there's enough truth in there that's very obvious and very easy for us to understand. And salvation is certainly one of those things. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. We've sinned. God's standard is perfect. He came to save us. We receive him as Savior. We go to heaven. It's pretty good. And so let's go to verse 11 now. So even Jesus in his mercy, even in his judgment, he is merciful. 
to put an end to it. Otherwise, no flesh would be saved. Trust me, as we have been going through what we've been going through in Revelation, if he didn't interrupt it, there would be such great devastation. Mentally, physically, spiritually, physically. But notice what it says in verse 11. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse... Behold a white horse, and he saw heaven opened. Now there were two places, two times in the scripture where heaven was opened. The first one was in Revelation 4. Remember after we talked about the seven churches? And what does it say in Revelation 4? It says, and I looked and, 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 and I was caught up. The, the, the door in heaven was opened, and John, being a representative of the church, was raptured. And he's taken up. And now as we get into Revelation 19... Another door is opened in heaven. This time, it's not someone going up. Now it's those coming down. It's Jesus and those, the saints, you and I, the church, coming back with Jesus Christ. So there's two openings. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was faithful and true. And you may be, for you animal lovers out there, you may be thinking, oh, great, there's animals in heaven. Well, maybe... We know that in, uh, in, uh, in heaven, it speaks of uh, some passages where there's horses involved. So I don't want to make a dogma or a doctrine out of this. You can't do that. But I do find it interesting. When we look at 2 Kings chapter 2, remember Elijah when he was taken with the chariot of fire and the, chariot, or the, the horses of fire. They came down and took him in a whirlwind and took him to glory. They were horses. And again, don't misunderstand me about this, because you'll come to me and say, what about my goldfish? Is he going to be in heaven? I don't know. If it's important enough for, for God to have that goldfish there, it'll be there. If it's not, you probably, you probably won't really worry and miss it. Okay, Things will be different. But in 2 Kings chapter 6, remember when Elisha and his servant was surrounded by the Syrian army, and Elisha said, Lord, open my servant's eyes, and he did. And what was, what was surrounding the host of Syria, their enemy? A host of heaven with chariots of fire, and chariots are horses of fire. There's something interesting about this horse. Again, not to build a doctrine at all, but it's just interesting. And Jesus is coming back on a white horse. Often generals, when they were successful in battle, as they, as they came into the town that they are from after a victory in battle, they would come in on a horse, probably a stallion, even a white horse, as a sign of victory. And they would have all the captives that they took in war following them. We saw that with Titus Vespasian when he came back into Rome. He did the same thing. But this white horse and the rider on it is Jesus Christ, unlike the counterfeit that we saw in Revelation chapter 6. Remember in Revelation 6, we saw this, when the first sealed judgment was open, we saw a, 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 someone on a white horse who had a crown on his head, and he went out conquering and to conquer. This is not Jesus in Revelation 6. This is the Antichrist, the counterfeit of the perfect Christ. And the Bible says that Jesus, when he comes back, he who sat on him is faithful and true. Faithful and true. Revelation 1, verse 4 says, Grace to you and peace from him who was and who was and who, who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, what? The faithful witness. He is the only faithful one. There's no one quite faithful like Jesus. Can you trust him? 
Can you trust this true and faithful one? I think we can. He's always faithful. He'll always be faithful to you. He's always truthful. He'll never lie to you. He embodies truth and faithfulness. In fact, he is the embodiment of those words. And any truth or faithfulness that's in me is only because the Holy Spirit is in me and I've got a small portion of it that I'm exercising. You follow me? So it's important to trust him. He is faithful and true. And what did he say in John 14, verse 6? Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. He is all of these things. And notice in verse 12, his eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. Underline that, many crowns, not just one. And he had a name written no one knew except for himself, but his eyes were like a flame of fire. Fire speaks of what? It speaks of purity. Do you desire purity? Blessed are those, right, Jesus said, who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. I want a pure heart, don't you? I don't know about you, but my whole world, the whole world actually, not just my world, it's your world too, by the way, uh, the entire world is against you. It's entertainments, it's music, it's movies, everything is corrupting our souls. And how are we dealing with that? What are we doing with that? Are we taking heed to our heart? For from it comes forth the issues of life. Isn't that true? Isn't that what the Bible says? How important is it for us to, to walk in truth and to, and, and, and to turn away from those things? Turn away from the filthy things, folks. The music, the TV, The DVDs in your house that you know you're looking at, you're like, they shouldn't be in in your house. There's some in my house. I mean, nothing rated R or anything, but you know what? PG-13, about 10 or 15 years ago, used to be called rated R. We've got to be honest with ourselves and, and ask the hard questions. But he has eyes like flame of fire. They, 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 they pierce right through everything. He can see as if, you know... He can see through lead. He's not like Superman who can't see through lead. Jesus can see through everything. He can see in the darkness. The darkness and the light are the same to him. He could be in a completely dark room and tell the, see the dust in the corner of the room on the floor. His eyes are a, are a pure, holy flame of fire. No wonder that John, when he was in his presence, he saw him and he fell as if he was dead. In Revelation 1.17, it says, And when I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, I'm the first and the last. This one who was so pure and holy. Believe me, if Jesus were to manifest himself here, we would all naturally, involuntarily, fall to our face because we'd be in the presence of someone who is beyond our wildest dreams. If any one of us were to stand up here, we would kind of look and say, why, why are they there? <laughs> but if Jesus were to show up, involuntarily we would all fall on our face and say, Lord, forgive me, cleanse me. You get my drift? This is who we, this is who we serve, this whole, holy and pure one. And there is no doubt who this is referring to because we see in Revelation uh, chapter 1, verse 12, remember uh, what John said, he says, 
And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band, his head and hair were white like wool, white as snow, his eyes, again, like a flame of fire. There's no doubt who this is. His feet were like fine brass, as refined in a furnace, his voice the sound of many waters. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, what did Paul say? That Jesus would come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is who he is. The great son of God, the great king of kings, and the Lord of lords. And he had many crowns on his head. This word crowns is diadem. There are two words for crowns in the Bible. One is a diadem, which is what this is referring to. And then there's a Stephanos, which is a a victor's crown, like a laurel wreath that you'd win in one of the games. But this crown is a kingly crown. It is a more significant crown. It speaks of all authority. And not only does he have one crown, but notice, underline it says many crowns. The Antichrist came and he had seven heads and ten crowns on those heads, or, you know, um, on those ten heads, seven crowns, or ten crowns. You get my point. But those were all, um, and, and the Lord will not be undone by Satan. He alone is worthy to be enthroned and crowned with many crowns. Crown him with many crowns, the Lamb upon the throne. Hark how the heavenly angels sing. Amen. Many crowns on his head. And there was a name written that no one knew except for himself. And the majority of the text literally has, there were names written and that nobody could understand or know. Names written, and only he knew them. It speaks of a character, doesn't it? When you name a child, you know, we should probably name a child after they're around 20 years old, because by then you really find out who they are, and then you can accurately name them. You can name them some really wonderful name like, you know, you know, Richard or something, you know, where the, the name means something beautiful, you know. But you don't name your son Judas when he's born. You don't name your daughter, uh, yes, or Delilah. But there's a mystery about Jesus. He's, un, he's truly unfathomable, and, and that is why we worship him. You remember in Judges chapter 13, an angel of the Lord, who we believe is a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus Christ, came to Samson's father, and he told him, and, and, and uh, Samson's mother, this son that would be born, Samson. And Manoah was so blown away, he says, what is your name, and when your words come to pass, that we may honor you? And the angel, the angel of the Lord, said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? It's a name that nobody knew but Jesus himself. In fact, the word wonderful literally means secret. It means secret. I love what Job said. He says, But as for me, in Job 5, verse 9, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause. And who, who does great things? Notice, and unsearchable, marvelous things, without number. Without number. 
He does great things past finding out, yes, wonderful wonders without number. In Romans 11, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Folks, we cannot worship someone that we have figured out. Some people in the church have claimed, oh, I, I know Jesus, and they treat him like the, you know, like the best friend, which is good that they've got a best friend in Jesus, because he can be your best friend. But they get so lackadaisical with it, and they get so irreverent, they just feel, I know, I know how he would do, you know, what he would say and what he would do and and, and you don't know <laughs> you have no idea we have no clue his ways are unsearchable i love in the psalms david says lord you are un- you're unknowable i know you this much but in the reality of things you truly are unknowable remember that's who he is and that's why it'll take an eternity for us to even understand a part of him and we'll never figure him out but he's given us enough to, to revel in him and to love him and to glorify him. There's no worries there. We'll always be looking at him with our mouth open and our eyes popping out. Do you get my point? Because that's who he is. He is wonderful. He's wonderful. And notice his robe was dipped in blood, verse 13, and his name is called the word of God. And this could mean this robe dipped in blood this could mean that that he was already in battle or perhaps he was he dipped it in blood before to show what is coming yet to show that he means business he's not coming back as the meek and mild baby lamb of jesus in the manger always so cute so harmless and cute when he came the first time he came that way to seek and to save the lost But when he comes back now, he's going to come and there's going to be vengeance on his eyes, in his eyes. He's going to come back for war and he's going to mean business. And see, that's what ought to stir us to evangelize all of those around us. Evangelism. It's a dying thing in in the church. And COVID-19 has only made it even harder for us. But I would encourage you to be challenged by that and not fall into that. And I, and I have, honestly. But we've got to break out of it. We've got to break out of it. Notice that his name is called the Word of God. Only of the New Testament writers, John the Apostle is the only one who refers to Jesus in this way. He calls him the Word of God. Remember in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, the very expression of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And here's a mind blower, and the Word was God. If Jesus is the Word, then it also says in John chapter 1 verse 1 that he is God. So when somebody says, well, it doesn't say anywhere that Jesus is God. Oh, yes, it does. It's right there. He's the word of God, become flesh. Isn't that what it says in John 1.14? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who is it speaking of? Bozo the clown? No, it's speaking of Jesus. He is the word that became flesh and became incarnate and tabernacled among us. He is the word of God. And I love what it says in 1 John 5, 7. We'll skip over that other one. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. The Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. You get it? The Father, the Word, the Holy Spirit. Who is that middle person? The Word, it's Jesus. Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. 
And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, they followed him on a white horse. Now, who are these people who are coming back with Jesus, this army? It certainly is going to be the church that was raptured before the tribulation. You and I are going to be coming back. I don't know about you, but I'm really excited about that. You've seen me last, uh, when, when I talk about David and Goliath, I get a little excited. I can't help it. But, you know, when we come back with Jesus, we're all going to be very excited. And you and I aren't going to be coming back with swords and guns, although it would be cool if we had them. Um, he's going to be doing all the battle. The battle is between him and the enemy. You and I are just going to be observers in this battle. We're going to be observers. Probably cheerleaders. We're going to be cheering on our king as he goes to victory. And finally vanquishing the enemy of our soul. You guys got awfully quiet. Is that a good thing? I think it is. It's a good thing to rejoice over evil. It's good to rejoice when God is victorious over evil. Don't ever feel guilty about that. The angels do, and you can too. God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, neither should we. But when it's, when it's coming, when the time has come, and it's, it's judgment... God's not going to have a problem with us raising our hands and saying, Lord, blessed are you. Righteous and holy and just are you. Amen. Amen. But it's not only us. It could also be the martyred tribulation saints and perhaps the resurrected Old Testament saints. Remember those in the Old Testament that had died in faith, believing in the Messiah to come. We believe at some point at the end of this Uh, when Jesus returns, which is really the end of the tribulation and also the beginning of the millennial kingdom. But somewhere in that area there, we also believe there'll be another resurrection of the Old Testament saints. In fact, uh, it talks about these things in in Matthew 24. It says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, now remember, Jesus is speaking to Jews. And he's speaking of his second coming to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. He said this, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the earth will be shaken, Then then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. And his angels, he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. Notice, they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one one end of heaven to the other. We believe that it's at that time that this other phase of the resurrection will take place. And those Old Testament saints who have, been, who have died in faith will be taken and raptured. And they, along with all of us, including probably an innumerable company of angels coming back with Jesus to finally reconcile these things on the earth. We don't have time to go through these verses. I'll just mention a couple, uh, briefly, in Daniel chapter 12, it says, God speaking to Daniel about Michael, the archangel. 
says, And at that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered. So obviously he's speaking of this time of the tribulation of which is ending now with the return of Christ. And notice, And everyone who is found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And he would go along in that same chapter, at the very in chapter uh, or the verse thirteen of that same chapter, the Lord tells Daniel, "But you go your way till the end, for you shall rest, and will arise to your inheritance at the end of days." So we believe these Old Testament saints will be taken. And notice in verse fifteen, now all the out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself, notice, he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And this is really what Armageddon is. The final battle between God and Satan. Everything that's been happening up to this point has just been the tribulation. God from heaven pouring out his wrath. But now it, it's, it's personal <laughs> and Jesus comes back to it. In Revelation 16, it spoke of this place called Armageddon, this place where this battle is going to be enjoined and fought from. The Satan, uh, excuse me, the, the, the beast, the Antichrist, the false prophet, they will gather all the armies together. And it says in Revelation 16, and they gather them together in the place called, called in the Hebrew Armageddon, which means Har Megiddo, which is just a mount of Megiddo, which is there in the northern part of Israel. We visit it when we go to Israel. And you'll see that valley. And we actually go up on Mount Carmel, which is not very far away. And we see the valley of Armageddon. And it goes all, it's called the Valley of Jezreel. And it goes all the way down from the north, from Megiddo, all the way down to Jerusalem, right to the right, that valley that goes right between the, the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives, sometimes called the, the Valley of Jehoshaphat or the Valley of Decision. That whole valley right there is where this battle is going to go. And it's perfect because it's all flat and it comes right down from the top and they can just march all the way right, right down to Jerusalem where they're ultimately the devil or you know the beast and the Antichrist, the, the false prophet, where they are going to come. And so that's the only place in the scripture where we see this word. And notice that a sharp sword goes out where he should strike the nation. And this is not a short sword. You remember in Ephesians 6, it says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Paul's speaking of a short little sword. It's about that long. You know, roughly, it's a a short sword. It's for hand-to-hand combat. That's the kind of sword that is spoken of in in Ephesians. But this sword here is a... A huge sword. This is a fatal, this is one of the, this is what you see in the Lord of the Rings. (laughs) A big sword, a double-edged sword. That's literally what it means in this thing. A sharp sword, it's a double-edged sword, and he's going to carry that thing, and it's going to be like a javelin. It's going to be so large. And whether it's going to be a physical sword, it doesn't make a difference. Because with his word, he is going to speak. He is going to speak. The same word that said, let there be light in Genesis. 
Let there be the animals and the fishes and all of these creatures. The same word that spoke everything into existence is the same word that's going to expel those enemies. He doesn't need a physical sword. He can speak a word and vanquish his enemies. But notice at the second part of 15, he says, and he himself will rule with a rod of iron. There are many Old Testament prophecies that we got to look through a few of them this morning. Just to kind of get an idea, I would encourage you to write them down and go look them up. But probably the oldest prophecy in the Bible concerning the second coming of Jesus was written by Jesus' half-brother. Remember Jude, the book of Jude, right before the book of Revelation? Jesus' half-brother wrote this, and he spoke of Enoch, who was the seventh from Adam that we read about in Genesis 5. Enoch prophesied, and this was before the flood judgment happened. (laughs) Before the flood judgment happened, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, said this. Notice, the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. To do what? To execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them for of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Even before the flood, God gave to Enoch an understanding that Jesus is coming back, the second coming that we're reading about now. In Isaiah chapter 11, it says, He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. That's who Jesus is. That's what he's going to do. And righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. In Psalm chapter 2, one of the most significant passages in the Psalms concerning the return of Jesus, says, Why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth, they set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. Sounds like today, doesn't it? Against the Lord and against his anointed. And here's what they say. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And notice what's going to happen. He who sits in the heavens, he's going to laugh. He's going to laugh at the hubris of mankind, the humanism of mankind, to dare to raise their fist against Almighty God. It's a fool's errand, is it not? Then he shall speak to them. Notice, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord will have them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. And yet, it says, I, will, I have set my king on my holy hill. And I will declare the decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. In the, in the book of Joel, chapter 3, we're not going to look at all of these. We'll look at the one uh, 11 through 16. It says, assemble and come, all you nations. Isn't this what's happening? All the nations are gathering and they're coming against the Lord and against those armies that are coming in heaven. I mean, just think about it for a minute. I mean, just logically, if something like that is coming out of the clouds and you see it coming and you see the armies in heaven that are coming, wouldn't that tend to kind of shake your confidence? (laughs) 
I think it would shake mine. There's no technology like that available on the earth. And here he is coming, all these people, these armies coming on white horses, coming down. I think at that point, I would just lay down my arms and say, forgive me, God. And you know what? I think things would probably be different, maybe. I don't know. But notice, gather them all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Verse 12, let the nations be wakened and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That's that valley I was speaking of. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go, or come and go down, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun will grow uh, the sun and the moon will grow dark. The stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord also will, will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter to his people and the strength of, for the children of Israel. I love that. And what is he going to do the very first thing he does when he comes back? We believe that the very first thing Jesus is going to do, and this is kind of different from what we've been taught I was always uh, told that Jesus, when he comes down, he's immediately going to go to the Mount of Olives and split it in two. And, 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 and it could happen that way. But there's good reason to believe. The Bible doesn't say that he, he actually comes down from heaven at that point and, and, and sets his foot on the Mount of Olives. He's definitely going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives, and it definitely will cleave in two. But we believe that what's going to happen is when Jesus returns, the first thing he's going to do is he's going to deliver those captives in the rock city of Petra. Isaiah 63, um, actually, let me back up to Revelation chapter 12. Remember when it talked about the, the dragon chasing after the woman who was the, the Israel, the 144,000 Jews. What does it say in Revelation 12, beginning in verse 13? Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who was Israel, who gave birth to the male child, speaking of Jesus. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time, three and a half years from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman. And the bottom line is, is he's trying to destroy her. And that's why even today when people go to Petra, they're putting Bibles in all kinds of places deep in the caverns of those places because that's where we believe the Jews are going to run and they're going to have shelter when the Antichrist comes after them. Way in, way in advance of what it's going to happen. But Jesus, isn't that just like him though? He doesn't want one minute to go by when he knows there's a remnant down in Basra and Petra that are waiting my return. I'm not going to delay one minute. I'm going to go and I'm going to minister to them. I'm going to fight the battle and I'm going to bring them with me. And then I'm going to go to Megiddo and I'm going to deal with those individuals there in the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of Jezreel, the valley of Armageddon. I'm going to do business there. In Isaiah chapter 63, it says this concerning that campaign. Who is this that comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, this one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save? That's the one. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? And here's Jesus' answer when he comes for those Jews. I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? Hallelujah. 
The day of his redeemed is come, the year. And I looked, but there was no one to help me, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought them down, or, and brought down their strength to the earth. Strength to the earth. Turn with me, if you would, um, or, or you can write the message down. I'm covering a lot of ground here. But in Zechariah chapter 14, this is another wonderful, wonderful passage. Notice what it says. Behold, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment, at least in the beginning. The day of the Lord is a very long period of time, but it starts in his vengeance. And it does include blessing because it goes into the millennial kingdom But it's the day of the Lord. It's the day of his vengeance and the day of his blessing. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoils shall be divided in your midst. For I will gather, notice, all nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. Isn't that what he's doing? Isn't that what we read about in Basra? And isn't that what he's going to do in the Valley of Armageddon? He is going to go against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Verse 4, notice, and in that day, sometime during that day when he returns, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. He's going to approach the Mount of Olives. He's going to go up there with his saints, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a large valley. Half of the mountain shall remove northward and half of it southward. And then you shall flee through my valley, my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azel. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. He will step foot on the Mount of Olives. And it will create such a seismic event, folks, that if you've been to Israel, you know how close the Mount of Olives is to the Temple Mount. If the Temple Mount is going to cleave in two, the Temple Mount, that temple that the Antichrist is going to build, I don't think it's going to be standing. It's going to be destroyed. I'm sure of it. For that kind of seismic event to happen... And for another passage, it talks about the earth being raised up and that, that original gate that Jesus is going to go through that's been prophesied in the Psalms. He's going to walk through that gate because it's, the whole earth is just going to be like a buckle. Geography is going to change quite a bit at that time. Notice back in our text in verse 16, and he has on his name, on his robe and on his thigh, a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Paul, when he was writing to Timothy, he says, Jesus is the blessed and only potentate. He's the only powerful one. And notice the title he gives him, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Jesus is the King, uppercase K, of Kings, lowercase K. And he's the Lord, uppercase L, of Lords, lowercase L. Jesus, this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, is the King of kings and the Lord of lords in Revelation 17. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for he, the Lamb, is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And notice, those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. How wonderful is that? I like that. That's the way he sees you and me. You're called chosen and you're faithful I don't feel so faithful right now 
but I'll take his word for it. Because that's ultimately where I'm going to be. It's where you're going to be. Amen. And Jesus is in his second coming. He is, as Daniel prophesied, he is that stone made without hands that is going to come and destroy all the earthly kingdoms. Uh, Let's see. Let's just look at um, one of these. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, it says, and again, this was written around the 6th century B.C., Daniel In the days of these kings, because Daniel's interpreting this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had of all these kingdoms, these major kingdoms, and then he said there's going to be one that's going to be like a a mountain made without hands, this large stone that's going to hit the foot of this image that represents all the kingdoms of the earth, and it's going to smash them all to pieces. And Daniel says, in the days of the kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, speaking of this millennial kingdom that we're going to be seeing next week, he shall set it up and it shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. That's what this rock from heaven, this mountain. And inasmuch as you saw that stone was cut out of the mountain without, without hands and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God has made known to you, king, that which, which will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure Put a stamp of approval on that. Get out the notary and notarize it. Clamp that little thing. Get the raised seal. It's done. That's what's going to happen. Are you excited? I'm excited. Love Jesus. Love him. And I love him. Do you love him? He loves you so much. Hang in there, folks. It may get a little dark before the light comes, and it probably will. But you remember these things that we're reading. Go over them. Read them over again. Watch the thing, the video again. Watch, listen to the recording again. Take down those things. Read them. Be encouraged in your heart about these things. And now, when this happens, when Jesus comes, the government will truly be on his shoulders. What did it say to Isaiah? God, what did God say to Isaiah 700 years before Jesus was born? Isaiah 9, verse 6. What does it say? Uh, actually, did I... Uh, back up. There we go. Isaiah 9 verse 6. You know this. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. He's going to carry it. He's going to be the powerful one. He's going to be, his name will be called Wonderful. Didn't we see that in Manoah in, in Judges 7? His name is Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. He's going to order it and establish it with justice and peace. Isn't that who Jesus is? Isn't that what he's going to do? Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord Strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Lift up, your, lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory will come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Amen. Verse 17, back in our text, it says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather for the supper of the great God. I've also entitled this time, The, smorg- the Divine Smorgasbord. And I probably shouldn't laugh about that, but I, I'm a boy, I'm a man, so I do, right? The, the, the child comes out in me. 
I think of a smorgasbord, you know, where you go and you sit down, you got all that stuff. And that's really what these men, unfortunately, are going to be to the birds of the fowls in the heaven. That's what they're going to be. It's going to be a divine smorgasbord. That you may eat the flesh of kings, that's the command, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. Notice verse 19, and I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together. Again, the lunacy of it, the hubris of it, they're gathering against this one coming with the armies from heaven to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And then the beast was captured, verse 20, and with him the false prophet. Notice, these are two of the satanic trinity. We have the devil or Satan. We have the beast who is the antichrist. We also have the false prophet. And I love the Lord in this because he takes away his two men first. He takes away two-thirds of the trinity and he leaves the devil last. He's going to let him think about this for a thousand years. We're going to see that next week. That when he comes back, he's going to take the false prophet and the beast. He's going to cast them into this, the lake of fire, which is what we would call Gehenna. It's the ultimate resting place for the wicked dead. There's no other place after this. This is the resting place eternally of the wicked dead. The false prophet will be there. In Daniel 7... In verse 9, notice what uh, Daniel spoke of concerning this time when the beast and the false prophet would be cast into the lake of fire. Daniel says in Daniel 7 verse 9, I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated and his garment was white as snow. Who is that speaking of? Jesus. And the hair of his head were white like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. And a fiery stream issued, came forth before him and a thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him and the court was seated and the books were opened. Uh Uh-oh. And I watched. Then, because of the sound of the pompous words which this little horn was speaking, who speaks of the Antichrist, the beast, I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season. And then it says in verse 14 of that chapter, Then to him... Jesus was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. See, that's what we've got to look forward to. And Daniel knew about it way back when. He already saw the Antichrist and the, and the false prophet. They were going to be tossed. The only thing that's left now is Satan himself, but God's going to keep him on a leash for a while, let him think about what he's done. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul, he says, The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. That's you and I, folks. That's you and I, church. He's restraining all the ungodliness in this world by the presence of the church, the Spirit of God in the church. But once we are removed, there's going to be no restraint whatsoever. It's going to go forward like you would not believe. Every evil thought, every evil plan that man has wanted, they're going to get what they want. You know, be careful what you ask for, because you might just get it, right? We have to be careful what we ask for. Not you and I, because we're not that foolish, hopefully. But the world is going to want what they want, and they're going to get what they want. God is not going to fight. He's not going to wrestle with man forever. Isn't that what it says in Genesis 5? I believe it's in 5. 
My soul is not always going to wrestle with man. If you want it that bad, Israel, remember when he, Israel wanted a king? We want a king. We don't want God to just rule over us. We want a king. And God says, a bad idea. This is, what, this is the nature of what your king is going to do. He's going to do this. He's going to do that. You still want a king? Yes, we want a king, just like everybody else. Are you sure about that? I think it's a really bad idea. No, we want it. Okay, I'm going to give it to you. Here he is. His name is Saul. Enjoy. See you later. I'll be back in a little while when your king has made a mess of things. These two will be cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And we'll talk more about that next week. There is a lot here. But hell and everlasting fire was not created for people. Initially, it was created for the devil and his angels. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, what does it say? Then he will also say to those on the left hand, and this is when Christ returns in his millennial reign, when he sifts the nations, the sheep and the goat, the sheep and the goats, you remember that judgment of nations. He says, he will say to those on his left hand, the goats, he will say, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for who? Prepared for the devil and his angels. It was originally for them. But unfortunately, People who follow them go to the same place. Ultimately, that's where they'll go. Do you think God desires that? Do you think the Lord enjoys that? And notice in verse 21, and we'll end here. And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. There are just a few verses here we'll take a look at briefly, and then we'll end. In Zechariah chapter 14, again, that whole chapter is incredibly amazing. It's an incredible chapter. In fact, it's in the Old Testament, but it's so New Testament to me. (laughs) Because the events that he's speaking of are very clear, very pictorial about what this passage that we're looking at this morning. It fleshes in the details about what's going to happen. But notice when Jesus comes and he speaks the word of his mouth and his enemies are vanquished. Notice what it says in Zechariah 14 verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. That sounds really interesting, doesn't it? Hope you didn't eat breakfast before you came. While they stand on their feet, their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. It shall... Come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them, and everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together. Gold and silver and apparel in great abundance, such shall also be the plague on the horses and the mules, on the camel and the donkey, and on the cattle that will be in those camps. So shall this plague be. And you know what it really comes down to is a truth that Paul tells us in Romans 6.23. And we'll end here. What does Romans 6.23 say? The wages of sin is death. It's not something that God delights in, but it's a choice that human beings make when they reject Jesus Christ. I pray that every one of you here this morning and everyone who is online, I pray that you know Christ as your Lord and Savior 
believe me, this is not a time to think, I, I think I am. It's not a time to say, I, I think so. I would encourage you that if there's any doubt in your mind whatsoever, you go before the Lord on your knees sometime today and you ask him and say, Lord, I've played games with you, maybe. Maybe I've been gotten too lazy, Father, spiritually. But Lord, right now, even though I believe I'm saved, if there's any possibility that I'm not, and I've just been kind of going through this thing, going through the motions, Lord, save me now. Save me now, Lord. I don't want to take anything for granted. I don't want to take anything for, for, for just chance. I want to know, Lord, would you please take over my life? Take my heart, God. Forgive me for what I've done, the things that I've done, the things that I've been doing, the things that I've been thinking, and cleanse me, Lord, once and for all. And Lord, do it now. Do it now. Not tomorrow. Do it now. That's the heart we need. If you don't know for certain, you must know. Do you understand? You must know. He wants you to know for sure, because believe me, one of the hell of being a Christian, the hell of being a Christian is to think that you are when you really aren't. And to walk around with all this condemnation, and to walk around with all this I hope so. Listen, folks, the time is drawing near. There's no longer any time for I hope so or I think so. It must be I know so. Will you make that commitment today? I'm going to do it. I already know I'm saved and I'm bought, but you know what? I'm not too proud to go before the Lord and say, Lord, if there's even an inch of my being, a centimeter, a, a nanometer of my being that is not yours, take it. I am yours. Would you please join me in that? Seriously, rededicate your heart to Christ today. Even for those of you who have been saved for a long time, today is the day again. I don't believe for a minute you can lose your salvation. Don't misunderstand me. But I know people, because they talk to me, and I know this about that this is possible, that there can be a Christian who's like, I'm not so sure if I really am. And probably the reason you are struggling is because you're still involved in things that you haven't turned from. And that makes you feel like you are not a child of God. And you know what? Maybe it's true. If you are a child of God, praise the Lord. We know that we're not perfect. You understand that, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? You can still be a Christian and, and, and sin, right? It's possible, isn't it? And sometimes if you don't turn from that thing, you get really discouraged. But I would encourage you not to lay in that pool any longer. Repent. Turn from your sin. Ask Jesus into your life again. And say, Lord, whatever you've got to do, do it. I'm ready. I'm willing. I'm... And you are able. Would you please, Lord, take me, consume me. I don't want to live in I hope so ever again. Does that make sense? Don't misunderstand me because some of you will come up and say, well, it's your works, right, Robin? No, it's not about my works. Sometimes we lose confidence because of our sin. And Jesus said, Paul, I encourage you, if we confess our sin, he is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise that he made. We either have to accept that and appropriate that into our life or walk around with a question mark 
I don't want to walk around with a question mark. Do any of you, has anybody here got a question mark over their head? If you do, would you come up afterwards? Because you don't have to have a question mark over your head. God doesn't want you to have a question mark over your head. He wants you to enjoy the, the relationship. He wants you to enjoy it. Because that's what his blood paid for. Amen? Let's stand and let's pray. Father, there may be some here, there may be some online, Lord, and, and maybe even some in the future, Lord, as this message goes out on the radio, Father, that are going to hear this message. And they are going to be in that place where I just don't know where I am. I don't know, Lord, if I'm really one of yours or not. I made a confession of faith long ago, and the world has gotten a hold of me, and I've, I've, I've continued walking in a, in a way that I know is not right, God. Would you please save me, Jesus? Would you please get a hold of me? That ought to be the cry of our hearts. Even now, Lord, get a hold of us. Arrest us again. May our focus be on you more than anything else right now. More than anything else right now. Would you please help us, Lord? Rescue, save, pour out your spirit that you've never done before. Lord, do it in this fellowship. Do it with me. Do it with my brothers and sisters here, Lord. We ask it simply in the name of our soon and returning King, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.